Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, we're going to be in verse 57 today of Matthew 26. If you're using the Black Church Bibles, that's page 833. Matthew 26, 57, page 833. Last week we saw Jesus in great anguish pray in the garden as he came face to face with the reality that he was about to suffer the wrath of God. Though he was the sinless son of God, on the cross Jesus would experience the full fury of God's holy wrath as he paid the penalty for the sins of his people. And that reality caused Jesus then to, to shudder and to ask the, if, the Father if there is any other way But Jesus accepted the Father's will. He accepted that there wasn't another way. And he moved, we saw him last week, move forward in triumph and in obedience to the cross while continuing to trust his heavenly Father. And we also saw that that triumph of Jesus was contrasted with the failure of the disciples as they failed, first of all, failed to watch him pray in the garden. And then subsequently they deserted Jesus as he was being arrested. Now in our text today, Jesus stands trial, having been arrested, he stands trial now before the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. These Jewish leaders, we've read about this several times in Matthew, they've been wanting to get rid of Jesus for some time now. They don't believe that he's the promised Messiah. They're jealous of his popularity with the crowds. They don't like how, uh, you know, they're afraid he's going to take away their power. And so they've been wanting to get rid of him. They've been wanting to kill him. And though their hearts are are gripped with this hatred and with this this murderous intent, our text today is going to just really kind of drip with hypocrisy in the fact that Yes, they want to kill Jesus. Yes, they want to get rid of him, but they want to do things according to the law and according to their tradition. So they're, they're trying to have this, um, they're trying to justify killing Jesus. They're trying to find some legal grounds against Jesus in order to have him executed. And so we pick up the account this morning in verse 57, and I'd ask the congregation to stand, please, for the reading of God's word. Let's follow along as I begin reading in Matthew 26, 57. Let's hear the word of God together. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver... The price, on him, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Praise God for his word. May God cause us to respond to his word with faith and worship today. Please be seated. The title of the sermon today is Rejected by His Own. Jesus, the promised Messiah, the king the Jews had been waiting for and longing for, had come. But his own people, especially the religious establishment, rejected Jesus. They would not have him as their king. And of course, the verse I kept thinking of this week was John 1.11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. In this text today, we're going to see this theme of rejection of Jesus in the Jewish leaders. Uh, we're going to be reminded of it, uh, the effects of Judas's rejection of him. And we're even, we'll even see it present in Peter as he denies the Lord. Yet we're reminded that this rejection of Jesus is according to the purpose of God. And it will not be the last word. So we begin this morning in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Immediately after his arrest in the garden, Jesus is led to stand trial before the Jewish leaders. Now, bear in mind, it's the middle of the night, and this is a quickly thrown together trial. So 
It's unlikely that every single member of the Sanhedrin was there, but they at least have a quorum present so they can move forward with the trial. And verse 58 says, Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. When Jesus was arrested at the garden, remember the disciples, including Peter, had all fled. But clearly, Peter is still concerned about Jesus. Peter loves Jesus, but he's scared at the same time for his own safety. (laughs) So you can kind of see this tension in him. He wants to know what's going to happen to Jesus, but he himself doesn't want to get arrested. So he's following at a distance, trying to be kind of incognito here. So he follows the crowd right up to the house of the high priest where Jesus is standing trial. And notice verse 58 says he's sitting with the guards in the courtyard there. I mean, that's something. I mean, he's, Peter's likely sitting with some of the same people who had just arrested Jesus <laughs> earlier in the garden. It says Peter sits down among them to see the end. Again, he wants to know what's going to happen to Jesus. What's going to be the outcome of this trial? What are they going to do to Jesus? So we see Peter's concern there. Now again, Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, they're trying to make it look like a legal proceeding, but but it's really not legal. They're breaking all their own rules and traditions here. According to their own rules, they were not to make final judgments at night. They weren't to do so outside the chambers of the temple. And on top of that, a capital offense was not to be determined during Passover. So they're, they're disregarding all these, their own rules here. But they've short-circuited the, their procedures and, and broken their laws because they want to push this through. They want to ensure this guilty verdict. Again, we've, we've read uh, several weeks ago, they're wanting to keep this on the down low, right? They know Jesus is popular. They know there's a lot of pilgrims in for the Passover. So they want to kind of get this pushed through as quickly and quietly as possible. But they're, like I said earlier, they're wanting to find some legal grounds so they can can appear like they're dotting all their I's and crossing all their T's. And they know that Jesus... You know, uh, his, his own life really <laughs> didn't provide grounds for accusation. He was uh, above reproach. So they've arranged, we see in verse 59, they've arranged people to actually bear false testimony against him. They've arranged people to lie against Jesus. Verse 59, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. <laughs> verse 60, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Again, they're, kind of, they're trying to do things according to the law, which the law says you've got to have two corroborating witnesses agree on the testimony, right? So here they had, I don't know if they had paid or pressured or whatever people to bear this false witness, but they can't get these two uh, false witness against Jesus to, to lie about him committing some kind of um, capital offense that would make him worthy to be executed. But even though these people are, are, are set up, to lie, they, they can't get their stories straight. They can't get, the, you know, it's, it's actually kind of hard to, right, this is kind of a, a reminder to us, it's a lot easier to tell the truth, right? It's hard to, to tell a lie, and it's definitely hard to tell a lie in concert with someone else, right? You know, to get all your, your, your uh, details uh, corresponding together there. And so that, it's kind of humorous, actually, the way God is, is thwarting their, 
their, their uh, evil plans here. Um, then, the, then the end of verse 60 says, At last two came forward, two witnesses, and said, This man said, talking about Jesus, of course, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So the only charge that they've been able to kind of get at least consistent testimony about uh, two witnesses to agree upon was that Jesus said he would destroy and rebuild the temple. And that was a serious charge to the Jews. I mean, the temple was the center of, their, of Jewish worship. It was the place where the presence of God dwelt. And, and so it, was, it symbolized the essence and the hopes of Judaism. And so that would be a serious charge. But even this is false, right? Jesus never said this. So again, I don't know if these witnesses had misunderstood what Jesus said or if they're purposely twisting his words to bring this charge. What we do read in in the Gospel of John early on in Jesus' ministry, John chapter 2, verse 19, um, after Jesus had cleansed the temple and they're, they're kind of saying, hey, who gives you the right to do this, right? Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So he didn't say he was going to destroy the temple, um, But he did utter those words, and then, of course, John goes on and gives us the commentary to say he was actually talking about his body, right? But here in Matthew 26, this charge gives, at least gives the Sanhedrin some traction. It kind of gives them something to to work with and to move forward on. So the high priest questions Jesus about it in verse 62. The high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Caiaphas wanted Jesus to respond to the charges made against him in hopes of provoking Jesus to incriminate himself, right? You know, it's kind of like he's got, eh, I've got a little something here, but I really need Jesus to give me more, more grounds to have him executed. But Jesus refused to give him the opportunity. And, of course, by Jesus' silence, we'll see him do this with Pilate as well, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy there, right? Isaiah 53, one of the passages that talks about the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, 7 said, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So Caiaphas is frustrated because, again, they're not making much progress. So here he... He, in verse 63, he puts Jesus on oath. He's, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So Caiaphas calls on Jesus to swear by the living God as, as solemn as an oath as could possibly be sworn. He wants Jesus to answer if he is the Messiah, the Son of God. So Caiaphas cannot get the condemnation that he wants. He can't get that guilty verdict that he wants from just from the witnesses. He wants, like I said, he needs Jesus to to really incriminate himself here. And that's why I think it's it's humorous what Jesus does in verse 64. He said to him, you have said so. It's kind of a veiled affirmative. It's kind of like saying, well, that's your way of putting it, Caiaphas. So Jesus knows what Caiaphas is trying to do here, right? And Jesus is not giving Caiaphas much to work with. But once again, as we've seen throughout throughout the Passion, Jesus will move things forward himself on his terms. 
right? Jesus is not trying to avoid the cross. He's moving toward the cross in obedience to his Father and out of love for his own. And so look at what he does at the end of verse 64. You talk about giving an incriminating answer in their eyes. (laughs) That's exactly what he does now. He gives Caiaphas a clear, no doubt about it answer. In verse 64, he says, But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's like now he's not just talking about the Messiah and being the Messiah anymore. He's, he's up to the ante here. In his reply, Jesus is quoting portions of Daniel 7.13 and Psalm 110.1. Matter of fact, he's kind of doing it in a sandwich form here. The, the Son of Man and then at the end the coming on the clouds of heaven. Those are both from Daniel 7.13. And then the part in the middle, right, the seated at the right hand of power, that's from Psalm 110.1. Power was just a reverential way of them avoiding pronouncing the name of God. So what he's done here is he's taken two passages that both point to not just a a king, not just a human king, but they point to a divine person, a, a person who is given sovereign power from God the Father to rule and judge all mankind. Because in, in conventional Jewish thinking, just being the Messiah, didn't necessarily mean that you were any more than being a great human king or a military general. But what Jesus is doing is he's expanding their understanding of Messiah and saying, yes, not only am I the promised king, but I am God in the flesh. I'm the exalted heavenly son of man who sits at the Father's right hand or will be seated at the Father's right hand and will be reigning as Lord of all. So he's given them what they want, basically. Because claiming to be the Messiah was not a capital offense. But claiming to be God, (laughs) claiming to be divine, claiming to be the one who is Lord and ruling next to God the Father himself, such an outrageous claim, you're forced with either two options. Either you accept it, believe it, and bow before him, or... You repudiate it, you reject it, and and say he's blaspheming. And, of course, Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders choose the latter. Verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. So as an act of horror and as an act of repudiation at what he's just heard Jesus say, Caiaphas tears his robes and accuses Jesus of blasphemy, a crime which did bring the death penalty. So the claim to be God provides the conclusive piece of evidence against Jesus, which again the religious leaders weren't able to do with their They're they're false witnesses, but Jesus has given them the grounds that they need for an execution. And he has, as we'll see also with Pilate, he's uttered the good confession, hasn't he? He's stated who he is. He's stated what his mission is. He's stated what what, what awaits him after his exaltation and ascension. Verse 66. 
So after tearing his garments, the high priest asks in verse 66, what is your judgment? He's talking, obviously, to the, to the council there. They answered, he deserves death. So the judgment's been given. They declare Jesus guilty and worthy of death. They're rejecting him. They don't believe that Jesus is sent from God. They don't believe that he is the son of God. They mark Jesus as a blasphemer and as a fake. And then in verse 67, they unleash their evil hatred on Jesus. They spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Again, what, what uh, evil, what arrogance, what restraint by Jesus, right? Here they're mocking him, not believing he is who he really is. What a wicked rejection this is from the Jewish leaders. Despite all of Christ's miraculous healings that they've witnessed or heard about, despite his power over demons, despite all the ways he's been fulfilling Old Testament scripture right before their eyes, the religious leaders reject Jesus as their king and as their God. And again, that's... It's tragic for anyone to reject Jesus, but I mean, how much more so? These are the religious leaders. These are the the students and teachers of God's word. They should have been seeing the, the, uh, the fulfillment of scripture more than anybody, right? They should have been leading the way to welcome their king, to welcome their God, to worship the coming of their God. But they would not submit to Jesus. They would not have him rule over them. And sadly, what we see as we go forward, and and again, it's certainly of a different degree, but we see the same theme carry out in Peter, too. The rejection of Jesus doesn't only come from the Jewish leaders. Now in verses 69 through 75, we see Peter also reject and deny association with Jesus. While Jesus was undergoing this formal trial above there in, in, in Caiaphas' house, there was a trial of different sorts, you could say, taking place below in the courtyard. Look at verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. Luke kind of paint, fleshes the scene out for us a little more and tells us that Peter was warm, warming himself by the fire and that the light from the fire was, you know, kind of revealing his face a little more to where she's like, hey, hey, I, I, I recognize you. She confronts Peter in the hearing of others gathered around there and says, you also were with Jesus the Galilean, the guy who's on trial right now. You are with him. Her statement, no doubt, got the attention of the people gathered around the fire. I'm sure, I mean, again, you know, just try to picture the scene, right? I'm sure they all, including the guards, remember, who are around there, kind of, what'd she say? And they start looking at Peter, right? I'm sure he could just feel the eyes of everybody turning on him. Verse 70, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Peter denied it. Notice before the whole crowd, before them all, 
those gathered there. And he does so rather evasively. I, I don't know what you're talking about, basically, he says. Peter leaves then the courtyard, no doubt trying to get away from the crowd so he can lay low, but again, still kind of see what's going on. Verse 71, he went out to the entrance, um, the entrance of Caiaphas' property there. But when he did that, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. So you can see the pressure is getting to Peter and it's interesting, by the way, what we're going to see with these three denials is that um, they, they each get more intense in, in, in how strongly he denies his association with Jesus. But then also there's, there's like a, what would you say, a, a physical or a spatial motif going on here in that he's getting further and further away from Jesus as well. So the pressure is getting to him. Again, he wants to know what's going on with Jesus, but he doesn't want to get arrested. And, but his, his attempt at being incognito is failing yet again here. Because now another servant girl has, has, um, recognizes him. And notice it says, she said to the bystanders, the first girl said it kind of straight to Peter. Of course, the others could hear it. But now this one's kind of telling the others, saying, hey, this guy was with Jesus of Nazareth. This, is, this guy, I bet, is one of Jesus' disciples. I, I recognize him. I, I've seen him with that man Jesus who's on trial right now. Verse 72, we get the second denial. Again, he denied it. This time, look, with an oath... I do not know the man. So here Peter's denying his association with Jesus before more people. He's being even more direct about it. He doesn't just say, oh, I don't know what you mean. He he says explicitly, I do not know the man. And he does it with an oath. I guess it'd be kind of like saying, "I, I, I swear to God, I do not know the man. Of course, as he's doing that, what we see is that the bystanders, they're hearing him talk, right? And they recognize his Galilean dialect, his accent. So now we've got others joining the servant girl in in accusing Peter or questioning Peter here. Look at verse 73. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Right? They, They knew that. You know, they could tell, hey, this guy's from Galilee, and, and what would he be doing here in the middle of the night, a Galilean, at, at, at the high priest's uh, residence here? So these bystanders, they're, they're, they're piecing it together. They're pretty confident about this. Certainly, verse 73 says, certainly you two are one of them. So you can imagine, you know, there's more and more rumblings. People are staring at Peter. They're kind of shaking their head in agreement. Yeah, 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 you're right. Now again, what could Peter have done at that point? He could have said, you know, you're right. I, I wasn't truthful earlier. I, I do know him. I am, I am with him. I'm one of his disciples. I believe he's my Lord. I believe he's my Savior. I believe he's the promised Christ, the Son of the living God. He could have testified to Christ in that moment. 
But instead, verse 74, he denies Jesus a third time. And, and look how intense he's getting here. He, verse 74 says, Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. So for the third time, he denies association with Jesus. He won't say Jesus' name. I, I just don't know the man. And to intensify his statement, he, he's calling down curses on himself. Saying, I, I don't know this man. I don't know who he is. If I'm lying to you about that, let me be cursed by God. He's saying. He really couldn't have disassociated himself with Jesus in, any more strongly than he did. And look at what happens in verse 74. Immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The rooster crowing reminds Jesus how earlier that very night, Jesus, remember right after the, the Last Supper, Jesus had told him that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. And Peter had blown off Jesus' statement, declaring, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Remember how emphatic he had been, even if everybody else denies you, I will never deny you, Peter had said. But, in fact, he has denied Jesus three times. And if you want to, you know, again, add to the power of the moment, I guess you'd say, uh, Luke's account tells us that at that moment, when the rooster crowed, Jesus looked at Peter. You know, so he's far off, and, but he knows what's happened. And he looks at Peter, and Peter sees Jesus. And that's when all this is coming together, and he realizes what he's done. He remembers what Jesus had said. He remembers his emphatic uh, promise to never do that. And so immediately Peter is convicted. He's grieved. And so the verse ends, it says, he went out and wept bitterly. He's, he's crushed in spirit. We would, he's grieved over his sin. He knows what he's done is wrong. Thankfully, this won't be the end of the story for Peter, right? We're going to see Peter that the very following Sunday with the, the other disciples. Eventually, Jesus is going to reinstate Peter. But in this moment, Peter has certainly failed Jesus miserably. Meanwhile, everything, again, for the Sanhedrin has been going, finally has been going according to their plan, I guess you could say. They, they, they have hate Jesus. They want to see him killed. They've been looking for a way to kill him. Now they have the guilty verdict they need so they can have Jesus executed. There's just kind of one more hurdle to get over here. And that is, remember, they're under Roman control. And under Roman law, they, the Jews themselves weren't, didn't have the authority to execute somebody. That had to come from the Roman court. So now their next step, really their final step, is to take Jesus to stand before the Roman governor of Judea, Pilate. It's Pilate who has to give that, that uh, sentence of execution. And so 
We'll get into that trial next week, Lord willing, but verses 1 and 2 kind of just sets us up for that. It says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. So again, I don't, I don't know if I would look at this as another gathering of the Sanhedrin. It's really probably kind of just the, 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 the culmination of this all-night gathering that they've had and probably other guys have been joining as as the morning has come as word has gotten out and so here they're they they are making it official i guess you'd say or or uh, fleshing out their plan here to uh, hand jesus over to the gentiles to the romans which, by the way, was in fulfillment of what Jesus had said would happen, right? Remember how he'd been, he had told the disciples along the way what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem? And in Matthew 20, 19, he said that this would happen, that he would be delivered over to the Gentiles. One more scene for us this morning. In verses 3 through 10, we see Judas's remorse and death. And likely this didn't happen until after Jesus' trial before Pilate, because it shows the chief priests and the elders back in the temple, whereas currently they're, they're kind of en route to bring Jesus before Pilate. But likely Matthew has inserted this information here, um, probably to set the, the treachery of Judas alongside the failure of Peter, kind of just showing this theme of, of people failing the Lord Jesus. And, and again, just emphasizing to how Jesus, everything Jesus predicted, everything he declared is coming to fruition. What Jesus predicted about both Peter and about Judas has come to fulfillment. So that's what we see now beginning in verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, well, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. So Judas experiences some kind of remorse here, but he, he does not biblically repent. In verse 3 there, it's interesting when it says he changed his mind. It does not use the normal Greek word for repentance. Rather, it uses a milder verb that means to feel regret. Verse 6, but the chief priest taking the pieces of silver, and again, here we just see this, this hypocrisy, this, uh, I don't even know what other word to say, kind of like, here they're, they're plotting all this evil and carrying out murder and, and, and f- framing someone and planting false witnesses, but then, oh no, we've got to toe the line, we've got to, you know, follow the, the letter of the law. So they say it's not lawful to put, uh, you know, they, Judas has thrown the money in there. They take the silver. It's not lawful to put them in the treasury since it was blood money. So what do we do with this? Verse 7, they took counsel and, and bought uh, with them, with the pieces of silver, the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. So they, like I said, you know, they're trying to keep the externals of the law here, <laughs> missing the, 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 the giant sin that they're carrying out. But, 
They, they used the money to buy a field for bearing foreigners. But in their hypocrisy and their shenanigans, the Holy Spirit leads Matthew to see the fulfillment of Scripture taking place. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now this quotation here that we see in verses 9 and 10 is actually a, a, a composite, some, some call it a mosaic of references to Jeremiah 19, to Jeremiah chapter 32, and like I said earlier, to Zechariah 11. And rabbis would do that at that time in the first century. They would, they would, kinda, they would create a composite quotation from different parts of the Old Testament scripture, uh, but, but they would, would kind of refer to it all under one umbrella, one reference, and that's what Matthew's doing here. Even though he's taking, like I said, different parts of Jeremiah and Zechariah, he says, thus what was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah. Kind of just lumps it all under Jeremiah there. But it's interesting when you try to start piecing that together, and I'll, I'll I won't go into excruciating detail here, but um, like I I said earlier, there's there's an image, there's a powerful image being uh, communicated here. Both Jeremiah and Zechariah were called to lead Israel with a prophetic and a pastoral type ministry, but what both Jeremiah and Zechariah Uh, encountered was the people, the sons of Israel, would not listen to them. The sons of Israel rejected Jeremiah and Zechariah and, in fact, caused them to suffer. And so both Jeremiah and Zechariah suffered innocently at the hands of the sons of Israel. And so Matthew's saying, wow, the same thing is happening here, right? Right? Likewise, the Jewish leaders have rejected Jesus, the one whom God sent to care for them, to lead them. Like Zechariah and like Jeremiah, Jesus is suffering innocently at the hands of God's people. And another thing that we see from those texts, I mean, you heard it when when Zechariah 11 was read earlier, By the people rejecting those whom God sent to care for them, they're bringing judgment on themselves. And that's what those passages in in Jeremiah are about. It's like, hey, go get this this pot and smash it because that's what's going to happen to you people. And the sheep who are prepared for slaughter. And so again, the same thing is happening here. Jesus is suffering innocently at the hands of the sons of Israel. And by them resisting and condemning Jesus, the Jewish leaders are actually bringing God's judgment down on themselves and on their land. And that's what Matthew is is showing here in these fulfillments of prophecy. Like the Zechariah 11 passage, God has offered his shepherd, but the people have rejected that shepherd And they've rejected him to their own devastating judgment and loss. Jesus, like the rejected shepherd of Zechariah 11, was despised and undervalued by the sons of Israel. That's why Zechariah, in our scripture reading, that's why he threw the 
the pieces of silver back in there. It was, it was an insult. Really? This, is, this isn't much. And that's what's interesting about the whole thing with Judas. We talk about him being greedy and all that, but 30 pieces of silver wasn't a lot in their day. But again, it just shows the rejection and the, 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 uh, how they despised Jesus, didn't believe who he was. So wrapping this up under the, this theme of rejection this morning, uh, again, it's, it's obviously a heavy passage. We, don't, you know, we, we grieve to see our Lord and Savior rejected this way, but we are reminded that God's purposes are being carried out here and that through his rejection, Jesus was paying for our sins. Right? This was all part of God's plan. Again, Jesus is the one moving this forward. By them rejecting him, he was going to the cross to be executed where he would bear the sins and the punishment of his people. Jesus would suffer on the cross where he was ultimately forsaken by his heavenly father and die as a sacrifice to satisfy God's holy wrath against the sins of his people, against our sins. So in his, it's his rejection that brought our salvation, is what I'm trying to say. And we know that the rejection of Jesus was not the last word. We need to be reminded of that, don't we? That yes, Jesus was rejected. Yes, he was put to death. But three days later, Jesus rose from the dead in victory over sin, over death, over Satan himself. And his rejection was actually turned to vindication as God the Father raised Jesus in power and great glory And now Jesus reigns as the risen and exalted Lord, high above all other power. And you know, when he was quoting that, um, quoting Daniel 7 and and Psalm 110, when he gave that strong answer to Caiaphas and the ruling council, what what a warning to them. Do you guys know who you're rejecting here? You're rejecting the the one who will be seated at God's right hand, who will be given all power and authority to judge. In our text today, yes, they're standing in, Jesus is on trial before them, yes, they're standing in judgment over him, but one day those tables are going to be turned and the stakes are going to be eternal. One day they'll be standing before Jesus. He'll be the one Who's the judge? (laughs) And of course, it's not just the Jewish leaders, right? The Bible says that all mankind will stand before Jesus. That one day, yes, he's going to return in power and great glory, coming on the clouds of heaven. Every eye will see him, and then all people will be gathered before him. And will be divided into two groups. Those who believed in Jesus, those who, by God's grace, embraced him as Savior and Lord, will be welcomed into glory, will be raised from the dead in in, uh, glorified bodies and, and reign with him forever. But those who rejected him, who would not have him as Lord of their life, will be cast into everlasting darkness and punishment. By nature, we are all like the Jewish leaders. By nature, we all reject 
God's rule, God's king, the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be our own king. But God in his grace rescues us from our sin. The exalted and risen Christ sent his spirit who comes and, and through the preaching of the word, through the word, reading of the word, however it's, it's heard through the word, he gives the new birth and he changes our hearts so that now we gladly bow before King Jesus. And yes, we see our sin and we see our need for a savior and we, by God's grace we forsake our sin and we cling to Jesus for our salvation. And so this rejected, now risen and exalted king is gracious. And he is, forg- he is even now building his kingdom and forgiving rebels and, and inviting all who will forsake their sin and come to him to be saved. And so if there's any here today who have not done that, I urge you to do so. Again, by nature, we have all sinned. We all want to live our own lives. And that is an affront to our creator. That is sin before our holy God and leaves us guilty and deserving his punishment. But run to the Savior before it's too late. Because once Jesus comes back and everyone's gathered and separated, then your, your, your eternal fate is sealed. So run to him in faith and repentance and be forgiven and gladly follow him as your Lord. Christian today, praise God. I hope this reminds you to praise God for the rejection that, that, that Jesus willingly endured on our behalf. Praise God that in his grace we have turned from our sins and have embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior. And yet, I do have one final word for us. And, and, and again, I, you know, I was thinking about rejection all, all week long, right? And so, again, praise God that he's changed our hearts and that we do love Jesus and we want to follow him. Yet, as we battle remaining sin, we have to recognize there's still that spirit of rejection in us that manifests itself in other ways. As we battle our remaining sin, we too often reject spending time with Jesus, choosing instead the things of the world. We reject his body when we forsake the gatherings of the church. We reject his rule when we will not submit to his word. We reject his help when we do not pray, and instead we push forward in our own strength. And so again, praise God for his forgiveness. Praise God that Jesus has forgiven us and that he loves us despite our unfaithfulness. But I just bring that up to, so that we will be aware of it and that we will cry out to God for, for his daily grace to battle that, that sin, to battle that, that rebellious spirit. In the light of such love and grace that we've been shown, let us joyfully abide in Christ. Let us embrace him, right? What's the opposite of rejection? Embracing him, running to him, clinging to him as much as possible. Let us love him, serve him, and delight in him. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for 
your grace that you would subject yourself, you would subject your son to this. Um, on our behalf. And so, Lord Jesus, we, we thank you. We thank you for um, enduring this rejection. Father, Son, Spirit, we, we praise you and thank you that you um, seek out and save rebels like us. We know that before you intersected our lives, we were all rejecting you. We were, we, we all had, uh, like sheep, gone astray, and each of us had turned to our own way. And so we praise you for your grace and, and, and giving us the new birth and bringing us back. And help us to bring glory to you, help us to delight in you, we pray. And may you continue to um, show the glory of your grace, of your sovereign grace, in drawing many sinners um, to repentance and faith in you. Be pleased to use us to, to bring that, that good news to them. And we thank you for the sure hope that we have that one day you are coming on the clouds and that every eye will see you and that because of your grace in our lives we won't have to shudder at that moment. We will be filled with joy. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing a final song of praise.